Let's pray together, please. Merciful Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for giving us the Bible, for giving us the light of your holy word in its entirety, so that we can understand ourselves, understand who you are, what we are supposed to believe concerning God, and what duty you require of us. We pray that you would help us in this time to receive the truth of this great passage with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn to Luke 24, verses 13 through almost the end of the chapter. Luke 24, verses 13 through 49. Luke 24, 13 through 49. This is God's word. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, 
He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. May God bless the reading of his holy word. My parents had a lot of puzzles and board games growing up. My dad kept an entertainment center with hundreds of LPs and a turntable with very nice speakers. They were about three foot tall each. He loved music. We used to listen to music turned very loud in the house growing up. And we'd play games and we'd do puzzles and listen to music. And one of the puzzles that I have no memory of actually finishing was a 500-piece puzzle that was a blurry aerial photograph of thousands of marathon runners from the Boston Marathon. It was the most frustrating puzzle we ever worked on. Standing the box top of the puzzle next to where you were working on it was always the key to getting the puzzle done. And you needed to be able to see the whole picture in order to have some idea where some of the pieces might go based on the colors on the pieces. And this was one puzzle where the box top was useless. Thousands of blurry, out-of-focus runners, all dressed in tank tops, was useless. And we never finished it. And I've already decided if I inherit it, I'm going to start a bonfire with it. (laughs) Box tops are very helpful when it comes to putting puzzles together if they give you a clear picture of the finished product. Jesus Christ is the clear picture. He's the clear box top of the whole Bible. You can't understand Moses and the prophets and the Psalms without him. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that Jesus is actually the explicit meaning of every single verse or every narrative or every passage in the Bible. However, when I was in seminary, I had a professor who rightly criticized people who try to find references to Jesus in every single detail in the whole Bible. And there are some that try to do that. They try to find Jesus in every minute facet detail of the tabernacle itself. And that professor said, I remember writing this down on my notes. He said, guys, some of those tent pegs were just there to hold it in place. Now, having said that, Jesus himself did believe that he was the major subject of all of the Old Testament scripture. He thought that to believe it was to believe in him. And he told his opponents in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me to have life. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, because Moses wrote about me. And we just read verse 27, you see it there? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then jump down to verse 44. He said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. 
Paul said the same sorts of things. In Romans 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We could spend the rest of the morning just looking at New Testament citations that tell us this, that everything that they preached about Jesus, the forgiveness of sins and being declared righteous and repentance unto life, that was all prophesied and pointed to in the Old Testament scripture. Now, what does it mean that Jesus expounded everything in the scriptures about himself? The Old Testament scriptures are said to testify of Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at the fact that the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis, they sweep through 1,600 years of earth history very quickly in those 11 chapters. Creation, fall, the flood of Noah, the table of nations, the tower of Babel. It shows us that God created a glorious paradise, which man was the image of. He was the image of God of. He was the pinnacle of that great and glorious creation. Man was created to have fellowship and joy in his communion with God. Adam was put on probation in a covenant of works, also called the covenant of life. And Adam rebelled. Adam was not deceived. He was not tricked. He just wanted to sin. And he brought sin and darkness into the glorious paradise that God created. But God promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the serpent's head. And that's what the rest of world history is about. The coming of the seed of the woman. The, the undoing of the work of Satan. And that's what the rest of biblical history is about as well. And that's why Satan is always so close to the church and always so close to that genealogical line leading all the way down to the coming of Christ. Now, you may have forgotten this, but we're actually in the middle of several series in the in, uh, Sunday evening sermons. Eventually, I hope to finish them before I die. But we're right now in the middle of, of Exodus as well. I did 40 sermons on the first 16 chapters of Exodus. And I'll tell you, having the opportunity to study Exodus the number of gospel illustrations and parallels is just staggering that I never noticed until I got to really drill into the text. It's amazing how much of the book of Exodus preaches the gospel of Christ to us. Think about it. Helpless Israel is in slavery in Egypt, just like all of God's elect people are the slaves of sin. Paul even uses that same term, slavery. We were the slaves of sin before we were liberated from slavery, just like Israel was liberated from slavery. Israel could do absolutely nothing to free themselves from that terrible situation. Neither can we as sinners do anything to free ourselves from our bondage to sin. They were slaves to the Egyptians. We were slaves to our sinful natures. God sends Moses, who speaks of God and speaks for God and does signs and wonders for the people. God sends Jesus, who also speaks for God and does signs and wonders. The tenth plague, which is the angel of the Lord coming down to strike dead all the firstborn among man and beast there in, in all the land of Egypt. And the Passover lamb, the, the blemish-free lamb, and the blood of that lamb is put on the doorpost. It's a great picture of the blood of Christ. That sprinkles us, and then when the angel of the Lord sees us, his wrath passes over us. That's what Passover is. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. What's the Passover about? The gospel. What's the Exodus about? The gospel. The whole Old Testament is about the coming of Christ. Even before the call of Abraham, you have the gospel in Noah and the flood and his ark. It's another picture of the gospel. The judgment of God comes in water and it kills all of humanity except for eight in the ark. And at the end of all things, another judgment 
is going to come, an eternal one, a fire, and it will consume everyone who is outside of Jesus Christ, the, the new ark. When Abraham is told to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac, that too is a picture of God sacrificing his only son. God stops Abraham from slaying Isaac, and there's a ram caught in a thicket nearby, and Abraham calls the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. God provides. The Lord will provide the sacrifice. God does this. There is no shortage. We could just go through the rest of the Old Testament from image after image and picture after picture, prophecy after prophecy. There's no shortage of that throughout the Old Testament. Once you learn to see Christ in it and know the whole thing is about his coming, he is the clear box top that we are to use as we read the Old Testament. The gospel has been promised by God before in the Holy Scriptures. They're in the Old Testament. They're in Genesis 3.15 and many other places. There's one gospel, one covenant of grace. There have never been multiple ways of salvation depending on when you were born. Old Testament believers were not and could not have been saved by keeping God's law. They were just as dependent upon the grace of God and Christ as we are now. They looked forward in history to Jesus' coming. We look backward in history to his having already come. It's always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that people are saved and justified before Almighty God. And that's what the Old Testament bore witness to in types and shadows and prophecies and is much clearer now in the New Testament. And so let's walk through this passage. We've got a lot to get through this morning and didn't want to make that introduction too long, but let's go ahead and plow into it. Verses 13 through 16 of Luke 24, 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with, one, with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Okay, stop there. This took place the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. Pretty amazing narrative here. It says in verse 13, you see it? That very day. We know that one of these guys' names was Cleopas. The other person might have been his wife. We don't know for sure who the other one was. But it may be the same person mentioned in John nineteen twenty five. And there was a lot of ink spilled on whether that's true or not. It's not really relevant to anything. But verse 14 simply says they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And we know from the rest of the passage, what are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about all the stuff that he did. They were talking about everything related to him. They're probably sharing things that Jesus had said that impacted them, things that he did that astonished them, how he was betrayed, how he was crucified, how the women had come and said that, man, they they said he was alive. They said that angels told them that he was alive. We know from verse 17's last phrase, you see the last phrase of verse 17 there? They stood still looking sad. They looked sad. What a great lesson for us when we're sad. Talk about the things of God with somebody. Do you have anybody that you talk to about the things of God that you're learning? About passages of scripture that God has been using to convict you lately? You need that in your life. When you're sad, talk to people about the word of God, about the gospel, the things about Jesus' great work for our redemption. Meditation upon divine things and talking about divine things, it's a salve to our sad souls. And it's a joy to happy souls. No matter what our current emotional or mental state, the promises of God are always good news, aren't they? And the work of Christ is always a joy to our hearts to contemplate. Knowing the love of God, our Heavenly Father, how it carries us through life. 
Now, it may be a little bit of an allegorical stretch to notice what happens in the next verse, but I can't help but notice that these people are talking about everything that had taken place regarding Jesus. They're talking about the things of God. They're talking about the Lord and how much he impacted them and what's been going on with him. And Jesus shows up. When you talk to people about the things of God, when you worship God together, when you read his word together, Jesus shows up. Look at verse 17. Jesus traveling with them there, verse 17. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. You almost get this impression. They're walking along. This third guy comes, is walking along. And what are you guys talking about? And it's almost like they stopped. They stood still and they turned to him and they're looking sad as if to say, where have you been? You've been living under a rock? You don't know what's been going on lately? Isn't that so ironic? You think God has a sense of humor? He certainly does. Look at what goes on, what they go on to do here. You look at at Luke 24, 1 through 12. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Everything about their response just emphasizes unbelief. But look at verse 18. One of them named Cleopas answered and said, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? That is seriously funny. Cleopas singles out the resurrected Lord Jesus, and asks him an almost chiding question. It's like the equivalent of saying, have you been living under a rock? We're talking about the same things everybody's talking about in this area. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that hasn't heard of all this? Where have you been? And I love Jesus' answer. He just plays ignorant. You see verse 19? And he says to them, what things? (laughs) The fact is, Jesus is the only one who is fully aware of the things that have happened there in those days. I just love it. But he asked them anyway, what things? Perhaps here, I think maybe, Jesus is giving them an opportunity to reflect on everything that he had told them before his crucifixion. Remember, he told them over and over again, I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And they know this is the third day, but none of them put two and two together, do they? It is the third day. And he did say that over and over again, but they they don't believe it. They're just not believing yet. Get the second half of verse 19. And they said, the things about Jesus of Naz- the Nazarene, who is a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Stop there for a minute. Isn't it interesting? They know full well their leaders did that. Yeah, it was the Romans technically. It was Pilate technically that actually had him crucified. But they knew. They knew it was their leaders that did it. Look at verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. So definitely, they had a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. Notice that verse 21, what it says about what they expected the Messiah to do. We were hoping that it was he that was going to redeem Israel. What do they mean by that? Almost certainly, they're talking about getting Israel out from under the Roman boot of oppression. They really hoped that Jesus was going to redeem Israel in that way. It's remarkable that these two heard from the women that the angels at the the empty tomb said Jesus was alive, but they still don't believe it. Jesus has heard enough, and he rebukes them. Look at verse 25 through 27. 
And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, I want to stop there just for a moment. Make a point of application. When we read the Bible, we don't believe it or we doubt it. This is the Lord's response to that. Foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Don't be that way when you read God's word. It has inherent binding authority always. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. There's no higher authority in all of the world than what the prophets have said and what they have spoken because what they said is the very word of God. There's never a good reason to be slow of heart to believe what the scriptures say. And so Jesus begins with Moses. That means he started with Genesis. And he walks them through the whole Testament. Moses and all the prophets. And he explains to them what the scripture said about him. And I've heard so many people say, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had that on sermon audio or something? If we had an audio file of that Bible study. And the fact is, we do have it. Where do we have it? It's the New Testament. We have what he taught them in the New Testament. We have how he taught them to preach Christ from just the Old Testament. We know what Jesus said to them about Moses and the prophets and the Psalms because we have our New Testaments. Praise God. And those books cite constantly from the Old Testament and explain how Jesus was there and the types and the shadows and the prophecies. You know, there are somewhere around 300 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled directly by Jesus at his first coming, at the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And when you look at the sermons preached in the book of Acts to the Jewish people, the apostles cite from the Old Testament all the different portions of it. They cite from Deuteronomy, they cite from the Pentateuch, they cite from the prophets, they cite from the Psalms, showing this is how Jesus taught them to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. It was an amazing thing to think that Jesus did all this for them. He ate in their presence too. You see that in verse 30? When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. That's one of the many convincing proofs. Remember Acts 1, 1 through 3? With many infallible proofs or convincing proofs, he showed them that he was really alive. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. So they only get to be with him when they know it's him just for a very short time and boom, he's gone. Look at verse 32 to 35. They said to one another, I love this. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them. Verse 34, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. I want to say, that's what all preaching should do. That's what all preaching should do. It should make people's hearts burn within them. It should set their hearts on fire. When God from on high does his grand work of regeneration upon one of his own and he makes them alive in Christ, their hearts will burn within them when they hear the glorious truth of the gospel preached to them. Once they realize what just happened, they immediately find the 11 disciples and they they tell them, we just met the risen Lord. We saw him. He ate in our presence. And they tell the whole story about walking on the road to Emmaus. 
But as I said, we don't need to wonder what Jesus told them about the scriptures. We have it in the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with citations from the Old Testament and all about the fulfillment that Jesus brought to those passages. So I want to tell you all, just as a, as a truism for your Bible reading, the key to understanding the Old Testament is the New Testament. Because the New Testament is God's own interpretation of the Old Testament. I say that because there, there are some groups that seem like they think they understand the Old Testament better than God does. And I just, I've never thought I'd have to say this, but you don't. Okay? God understands the Old Testament better than anyone thinks they do. Okay? Jesus rose from the dead and he proves it to his disciples. He talks to them, he allows them to touch him, and he eats in their presence. Now look at verse 36 through 39, other resurrection appearances here. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was so incredible, so unbelievable, that Jesus had to rebuke them for their unbelief while he was standing there looking at them. He rebuked them for their unbelief while he was talking to them. That's one thing to say, well, I don't believe someone else's testimony, but if the guy whose resurrection you doubt is the one telling you to believe in it, don't you think that should be enough to believe it? And yet, are we any different? We wouldn't have done any better with this. I love what he orders them. He gives them an imperative. Touch me and see. He knows they're thinking, it's a ghost. They're thinking, that can't be Jesus. Jesus is dead. And he tells them, I'm not. I'm right here. Touch me. See. They knew where he was buried. They knew he was dead. And yet he's right there talking to them. And it just says they're startled and frightened. They think he's a spirit. They must have thought they could walk right through him. Couldn't be real. Look at verse 40 and 41. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So even after touching his hands, seeing his feet, after they touched him, they still didn't believe it. I mean, verse 41, what an incredible passage. They still could not believe it for their joy and amazement. So he says, okay, do you guys have anything to eat? Dead people don't eat. Here, he ate, ate a piece of fish in front of them. He's standing there talking to him. They see him. They hear him. They've touched him. You ever notice the opening uh, phrases of the book of 1 John? That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have touched, which we have heard, which our hands have handled. Okay, John was there for this. He, he did all that. So he's saying, I know he's alive because we heard him. We, we touched him. We handled him. We saw him eat. And yet they still had a hard time believing it. They still had a hard time believing it. Look at verse 44 through 45. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's a very important concept communicated there. God has to open our minds to understand the scriptures. Paul understood that truth when he talked about his Jewish friends that still didn't believe in scripture. In 2 Corinthians three fourteen. He says of them, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament 
But the veil was taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. God has to open our minds to understand the scriptures. And until that veil of blindness is taken away by the work of God, we can read the Bible all day and never understand it. There are always spiritual things going on when someone reads scripture. Always know that. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, there are spiritual things happening when someone reads the Bible. It's not like reading any other book in that it's the very words of our creator. If our hearts are darkened and dead in sin, our minds will remain blind and that veil will remain unlifted. It's not until God turns us to Christ that the veil is lifted so we can see at last. Look at verse 46 through 49. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So that ends our passage. The suffering, the death, the resurrection, Christ, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations that was written about in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms in all three sections of the Old Testament. All of it had just been fulfilled and they are now talking to and looking at the embodiment of that fulfillment in the resurrected Messiah standing before them. And that's why he says to them, you all are witnesses of it now. You have seen that what Moses and the prophets and the Psalms said was true. And then he walks them through it and shows them, here's how to preach me from the Old Testament. He had conquered death just as the Old Testament said he would. As was already said, there are about 300 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament that were directly fulfilled by the coming of Christ and everything he did. Obviously, I'm not going to read them all to you, but what he does mention in the passage here, I do want to read to you, that the Christ would suffer and that he would be crucified, and that he would rise again. And everything related to that is prophesied in great detail throughout the Old Testament. So let me walk you through these. <clears throat> Number one, Jesus said that the Christ would suffer. It was written, it is written, the Christ would suffer. Genesis three fifteen teaches that. The seed of the woman would inflict a fatal wound on the serpent's head, but he would be bruised in the process. He would suffer as he did that. His heel would be crushed. Psalm 41, verse 9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend. That was prophesied in Psalm 41, fulfilled in Matthew 10, verse 4, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, his trusted friend who ate bread with him. Remember at the Last Supper, the one who dips the bread is the one who will betray me. Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that that was prophesied, Zechariah eleven twelve. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, 15. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Judas said to the Sanhedrin, and they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. I have a question. Is it possible that maybe he would have been betrayed for 29 pieces and not 30? When John O'Rourke and I debated the open theists, we, I think we did ask them that question. They said, yeah, he could have been off by a couple pieces there. I assure you, he couldn't have. Okay, it was going to be 30 pieces of silver. His being forsaken by his disciples, that was also prophesied. Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
Mark 14, 50, then they all forsook him and fled. Being accused by false witnesses was also prophesied. Psalm 35, 11, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. Matthew 26, 59, now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. Being wounded, being bruised, being beaten, that was also prophesied. Psalm, or Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah was written seven centuries before the birth of Christ. Psalm 22, a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Matthew 27, 26, then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That Jesus would be smitten and spit upon. That was also prophesied by Isaiah. I gave my back to those who struck me. That's a reference to the scourging of Jesus. And my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and from spitting. Matthew 26, 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. That Jesus would be mocked was prophesied a thousand years before it happened. Psalm 22, 7. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew 27, 31. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. And in fact, the Pharisees actually probably unknowingly quote some of Psalm 22. He trusted in the Lord. Let's see if the Lord saves him. Jesus being hated for no reason was prophesied. Psalm 69, 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. John 15, 25 says, But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. People who looked at Jesus, they would shake their heads at him in disgust. That was prophesied too. Psalm 22, 7. All who see me ridicule me. They shake their heads. Matthew 27, 39. Those who passed by blasphemed, wagging their heads. That people would stand and stare at him. Even that was prophesied. Psalm twenty-two, seventeen: I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Luke 23, 35. And the people stood looking on. Jesus' garments, having lots cast for them, was foretold. They divide my garments and for my clothing they cast lots. The soldiers did that. The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart. And also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. That gall and vinegar would be put up to him on the cross, that was also prophesied. Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Matthew 27, 34 is fulfilled. They gave him sour wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Jesus being pierced by the spear thrust was also prophesied. Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on me whom they pierced. John 19, 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And that Jesus would rise from the dead was also prophesied. 
that he would come back to life after his death was prophesied. Psalm 49, 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Isaiah 25, 8, He will swallow up death forever. Hosea 13, 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plague. O grave, I will be your destruction. Psalm 16, 10, For you will not leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will not allow your Mashiach, your Messiah, to see corruption. Isaiah 53, 9, They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How can he see his seed and prolong his days if he's still dead? He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. In Job nineteen twenty five, I know my Redeemer lives he shall stand at last on the earth and after my skin is destroyed this i know that in my flesh i shall see god and then the evangelization of the world that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached to the world that's prophesied in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms as well god promised worldwide evangelism to abraham genesis twenty two eighteen. in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. At the prayer of dedication to the first temple, King Solomon, down on his knees with his hands lifted up high in 1 Kings eight forty one, prayed, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, <clears throat> but has come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand <clears throat> and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards this temple. Here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Isn't that amazing? The king of Israel prayed for all the Gentile nations to know and fear God. Why was Israel so exclusive about who God could love? No, 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 God cannot possibly love Gentiles. God promised your forefather Abram that all the nations of the world will be blessed And your great patriarch Solomon prayed that all the nations, the foreigners, the non-Israelites would fear and love God and come to the temple. And I would say you cannot sing the Psalms and miss worldwide evangelism. It's all over in the Psalms. Psalm 72, 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. One more, Isaiah 87, 4. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia, this one was born there. In the assembly of God, in the church. And of Zion, it will be said, this, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Selah. That means stop and meditate. Both the singers and the players on the instruments say, all my springs are in you. Remember Isaiah chapter 2? We did a whole sermon just on Isaiah 2 not too long ago. Many people shall come and say, 
Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The people of the world will come to Mount Zion to be taught the ways of God. Isaiah 45, 14. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you saying, surely God is in you. And there is no other. There is no other God. Egyptians and Cushites and Sabians and all these pagan Gentiles will come and say there's no other God. Isaiah 45, 22, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath and he shall say, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. These are the passages that Jesus taught his disciples. These bear witness of me. This is the prophecy. This is what the Old Testament said about forgiveness of sins and worldwide evangelization. And you guys are going to bring this to the Gentiles. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Malachi 1.11, last one. From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. You hear that? Why, why were the religious leaders of Israel so averse? A Gentile came and breathed the same air as Gentiles. Gentiles are dogs. They're all going to hell. We have no use for them. Prophecy after prophecy after pro- passage after passage after passage after passage. God said the Gentiles are going to be part of the church. They're going to be my people. People born in Cush and Ethiopia and among the Assyrians and Babylon, they're all going to come in and my light's going to shine and I'm going to be great among the Gentiles. That's what Jesus taught his disciples. And notice what he says again, verse 45. You see it in closing? Luke 24, 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. That's essential. Without that, none of this stuff makes any sense to us. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I've read to you is just very small sampling of what could be read about Jesus in the Old Testament. But we've got, I believe, one more sermon in Luke's gospel, and then we'll be done with it. And next time I preach on it, it will be about Jesus's ascension. The doctrine of Jesus's ascension is a vitally important doctrine. It's one that's often not talked about. I think it's been somewhat lost in our day, and I think that you will be greatly encouraged by it. So let's close in prayer. Our gracious Lord and God, we thank you for giving us this great gospel of Luke. What a testimony to your life-transforming power, to your faithfulness, to your promises that you made to Abraham and to the patriarchs, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and to Satan himself, promising him that his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. We are so blessed to be reconciled to you through his great work. And may our hearts burn within us as we hear from the scriptures, the mighty works of Jesus Christ and how he saved us. In his name we pray, amen.